Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. When you wrote The God Part of the Brain several years ago, what was it that got you going? What compelled you to write it? Uh, well, you know, after a lifetime of questioning what is the nature of my reality, more or less, am I a spiritual being um, or am I a physical being? When I die, am I ashes to ashes, dust to dust, or is there some ethereal, soulful, you know, element within me that will live forever? You know, that was sort of one of the as it as it is with many of us, it was one of the driving questions in my life. And I read a lot of, studied a lot of philosophy, a lot of science. And when I, you know, just so happened I was in Germany at the time working for a film company, and I sort of had an epiphany and came up with this solution. Um, and once I did, I realized I was onto something novel that is sort of a culmination of of what I'd been searching for. So I was motivated to come back to New York and I took off a few years and, and, and wrote it. But, but, you know, that was the motivation was that I felt that I had stumbled onto something that no one else had really come up with as of yet. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I felt I needed to do this. And the God part of the brain is, uh, it's controversial because, you know, there are a lot of people who will say, there is a God, and we'll get into your reasons why you don't think there is. But uh, we'll talk about the the wiring of the brain. But it is it is controversial. Did over the years now, over the last several years that it's been out, mm-hmm. what what has been the response been? I mean, it's it's been selling well. But I mean, are people sending you hate emails? You get favorable emails. What happens? Um, well, sure. When you're telling the world that you know, that there's a neuroscience that can prove there is no spiritual reality, that there is no God, that all the religions they believe in are fictitious, uh, that there is no soul, there is no afterlife. That certainly, uh, you know, annoys a few people. And, and yes, I've gotten, I've gotten death threats, I've gotten hate mail. Oh, death you know, threats. That's, that's, that's... that's the fringe you know, for the most part, at least from the scientific community and from the secular community, from academics, etc., I've received, you know, nothing but high praise, but certainly for, you know, people who are entrenched in their beliefs, they take offense to what I write. So, yeah, I've gotten some angry, some angry, bitter stuff. And then some other people who, you know, took a lighter approach and were like, you know, we pray for your soul and Hope that you find the light of God and don't burn in hell. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it goes both ways. Well, and, and, you know, death threats uncalled for with just about anything. But, my God, these are your views, whether, yeah, you would think. I mean, they're your views, whether we agree with you or not is not the point. But you don't, you know, go after somebody and try to, you know, threaten to kill them because you don't agree with them. My gosh. Right. Well, it's a nice thought that one wouldn't, but if we, if all we have to do is, you know, open any given history book to see that the history of man is, you know, is, is spotted with religious wars, with crusades, with inquisitions, with, with jihads. I mean, you know, from the beginning, and that's part of what I write about, the destructive, you know, influence of this, of this instinct in us. 
that uh, it, 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 it riles us up to fanaticism to the point that we're willing to strap a vest on ourselves and walk into a supermarket in the name of our God. So I'm not the first person who's, who's felt the wrath of an angry religious person. And sadly, you won't be the last. Correct. What was that aha moment for, for, for you when you started putting together the guard part of the brain? Was there some episode that occurred in your life? Um, it's a good question. It wasn't an episode. It was, it was, uh, and there was an aha moment. Um, so, you know, I, I was living in Germany. I was working for a film company. I had sold a screenplay, uh, to this European film company and they offered me a job and I was contemplating working there and moving there. And I, you know, for a second, I thought, you know what, you know, I, studied philosophy. I was very entrenched in science and philosophy when I was younger. And I felt like, all right, I'm, I'm about to take a job. You know, I'm giving up the life of, you know, putting down my toga and, you know, giving up the philosophical realm to embrace the material world and take a job and accept the salary. And I felt a little saddened by that, that I kind of felt like I would was putting my philosophical self aside and you know, one has to feed themselves and keep a roof on their head. And I said, you know what? Fine, I'm going to have to live my life, and that's that's the way it is. But I said, you know what? Every once every five years, just for the heck of it, I'm going to revisit the question. And I said, before I tell them yes that I'm going to take this job, I just said I'll re- I'll revisit it now. And I closed the script that I was working on, and I literally I typed out onto the screen. I was like, well, I'll, I'll readdress the question once more. I haven't really thought about these things in a while. I was like, so in the last year since I've last thought about any of this, you know, has anything changed? Have I witnessed any miracles? Have I seen anything that, you know, has, has changed my, my outlook on life, that I see things differently, that I believe that maybe I've witnessed something that has given me a sense of faith that maybe there is some spiritual reality. And I was like, no, 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 of course, you know, nothing's happened. Right. I've had no epiphanies, you know. So I typed down on the computer, I'm like, in the last years, have I come across anything that has given me any reason to believe that I could say I have absolute knowledge of God or certain knowledge of a God? And I was like, you know, uh, and I was like, no, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing. And then I had my epiphany. I was like, huh. I was like, there actually is something I can say with certain knowledge of God. I was like, this isn't the kernel that I was kind of hoping for, but sometimes things take an, an you know, unexpected and strange angle that you weren't foreseeing. I was going to say, sometimes God works in mysterious ways. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> sometimes God works in mysterious ways. So I was like, there actually is something I can say with certainty of God. It's sitting on the computer screen in front of me. It's a word. I was like, it's a tangible thing. If I say it, I can hear it in Braille. I can touch it. God is a word. I was like, okay, that's interesting. Wasn't expecting to go there, but I was like, okay, so in all the science that I've studied, what does science say about words? Well, it's a human convention. It's a human contrivance. It originates from the brain. 
because we are a linguistic animal and we have parts of our brain that generate our linguistic abilities. So I was like, okay, interesting. So God is a word. Words come from the human brain. Moreover, I said, it's, and it's a word that exists in every culture that I've ever studied, anthropologically speaking, every culture has believed in some form of a god. Every culture has had a word for soul or spirit in their vocabulary. <clears throat> so I was like, hmm, well, what does science say about universal behavioral patterns? And what science says about universal behavioral patterns is that they are wired into us. The fact that all dogs bark and cats meow and beavers build dams or humans have language, it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It's because it's wired into our brains. There are parts of our brain in cats. There's what we could call the meow part of its brain, a specific region responsible for generating that specific behavior. In humans, every culture has had language. Again, not an accident. It's because it's wired into our brain. And with the help of neuroscience, we now know about the Wernicke's area and the Broca's mm -hmm. area and the angular gyrus, parts of the brain that are specific to our language capacities. If you damage one of those parts, you'll suffer what's called a linguistic aphasia, a loss of an impairment to some aspect of your ability to either comprehend language or to communicate it. So I suddenly realized one could apply that to the fact that every human culture no matter how isolated, has believed in some form of a spiritual reality, suggesting that humans are genetically predisposed, that we are hardwired, that there must be parts of the brain that compel us to perceive reality from this particular bent. But if, if we're hardwired, though, hmm? if we're hardwired, though, there are people yeah. who don't believe, atheists, you don't uh, believe. Absolutely. What happened sure. to the wiring in you? Let me refer you to chapter 11. Why are there atheists? Is the chapter in my All book. Right. All right. And, it's, and, and yeah, and it's, a, it's an excellent question, so much so that it prompted me to write a chapter on it. And I'll give you the answer that I came up with. Okay. Which is now, which is now an established part of cognitive science. Um, so, for every cognitive trait we possess, we form to a bell curve for every physical trait that we possess. So if you take a population of any given thousand people and you measured, let's just say, some physical characteristic like height, mm -hmm. you would find that they would form to a bell curve, that basically the, the average person would fall into the range of what we would call average height, uh, the bell, you know, the, the, the hump of the bell curve, but on the tapering extremes, there would be a certain sub section of people, a minority, on one end who are excessively short and on one end who are excessively tall, right. taller right. than the mean, shorter than the mean. Well, the same thing is, holds true for cognitive traits. <clears throat> so, for instance, humans are a musical animal. We're inherently musical. Uh, you go to any culture in the world, they will bang on things to make music. <laughs> people, will, people will sing. Um, however, it's a cognitive trait because of human variation, genetic variants, we all come out a little bit different. So if we were to look at the bell curve of musicality, we would find that the average person possesses what we, possesses what we could call average musical potential. And on the tapering extremes, however, there's a smaller cross-section of individuals from any given society 
who will have either on one end a diminished musical capacity, on one end there are people born tone deaf. Right. And on the other extreme, there are people born savants, people who from a young age, if you play them a Beethoven sonata at age five, they can play it note for note without even having ever taken a piano lesson. They can sit right down and go and, and, and do it perfectly. Exactly. And again, on the other extreme, you got you have people born tone deaf. They could have had Beethoven and Mozart as their personal tutors, and they'll be lucky if they can grow up to sing Happy Birthday. <laughs> so, And I've heard of some of them. I've heard some of them try to sing that, too. I, I, I might be one of them. You'll find me in a karaoke house. Um, so, so, yeah, so basically I applied that principle to spirituality and religiosity and found that same thing applies, that the average human from any culture possesses what we would call an, an average sense of religion, an average sense of spirituality, a belief in, in transcendental beings, in, in, a, in a spirit, a soul. And on the tapering extremes, however, you're going to have some people who are hyper-religious. They're going to be people in every society who are like born with the spirit in them, who can, who can get up at the pulpit and from as children deliver a heartfelt sermon about God, about belief. And on the other extreme, you have people who just are like, I don't get it. I don't care. I'd rather be out there playing ball than sitting in the church listening to this mumbo jumbo. So basically, it's, 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 you know, the solution I came up with is genetic variation, that there's a cross-section of people from every population who just don't care, they don't get it, they're not interested, it doesn't appeal to them, they'll never understand why some people, and I've had people write to me, people who read my book, who've written me things like, you know, thank you so much for writing this, you know, I grew up in a religious household. I'm in a family with like five other children. Ever since I was a child, we were dragged to church. My whole family speaks in tongues. You know, they, they, they collapse. They, they go into some of they have like what looks like an epileptic seizure. And my whole life, I looked at them and I would kind of almost pretend I felt that way, but I was just acting because I never did. And then I read your book and I was like, oh, I get it. I just don't care. It's not in my wiring to. So... So anyway, there, there's your solution for why are there atheists, chapter 11 in the God part of the brain. Is the wiring a natural phenomenon, or is it a, uh, a fluke? What might it be? Mm-hmm. Again, good question. Um, so as I was writing this, I realized, all right, you know, I can't just sort of throw out this theory without some rationale behind it, because if I'm going to be talking about it as an evolutionary adaptation, Things in nature don't evolve for no reason. You know, animals develop a certain coloring to camouflage. It's not an accident. It's for a specific reason. You won't have an animal, you know, that lives in a green forest suddenly coming out bright red as a means to camouflage. They'll all get eaten. Right. Um, so there's, there's a reasoning behind how, how evolution works and how, you know, how, how, how environmental selectionism works. So I was like, so what was it about humans that would have prompted something like this? And as I thought about it, I was like, okay, well, what makes humans unique against all the other creatures? I was like, well, we've got music, we've got math, we have language, but more than anything, we have self-conscious awareness. We're the, self, we're the first self-aware organism. 
uh, we're the only organism that can, that can say I am, I exist. And that made us the most powerful species on Earth. Because unlike any other animal, for instance, if it gets cold, whereas other animals either have to huddle into a, you know, into a cave or if, a, if there's a real shift in the environment, have to wait millions of years to evolve a thicker coat of fur, humans can say, I am cold, and we can sew ourselves a coat of fur in an hour. That's right. Or, or build a house with, with a, a fireplace or, build, or, or something. Or build wings if we think it might be advantageous to fly. We don't have to sit back and wait to, to evolve wings. We can build them for ourselves. So as a result of self-conscious awareness, humans have the power of self-modification. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.